for the last two weeks, we've been journeying through Paul's first sermon recorded in the book of Acts, and we've seen a particular theme running through that sermon, and it's, it, that theme's going to drive all the way into this final section of the sermon, and so I just see no reason not to just jump in, just, let's just jump into where we left off so that we can get to the end of this sermon, in both senses, I guess. Paul and mine. So we've noted in the front two sections of this sermon that Paul is tracking with a particular pattern that he sees in Israel's history. If you remember, he's preaching a sermon. This is the first recorded sermon by the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. And he's, what he's doing is he's preaching to this group of Jewish people in the synagogue on Sabbath here in a small city in what is now modern-day Turkey. And he, as he reviews the history of Israel, he picks up on three particular periods in Israel's history. Just so we remember what those are in this front section, he talked about the Exodus, the period of the Judges, and then the front part of the Kings. He just walks through each of those periods of Israel's history, and he sees a pattern. He sees a pattern with each, in each of those periods of Israel's history. Here's the pattern. We've noted it for the last two weeks. God delivers His people. He just abounds with mercy for the people He chose. And yet each, each time He delivers them, the people rebel and they go in search of another Savior. It's just this cycle that God's people go through time and time again. And this is really a key, a key point he's making in the front part of this sermon that he's giving here in the synagogue to these Jewish people and these God-fearing Gentiles. And he notes that after that period of the kings, that moment where the people rebelled and said, give us, our, give us a king. We reject God as our king. We want our own king. We want to be like all the other nations. God does just that. And he continues to be merciful. But God in that moment does promise that there will be a king one day who will finally deliver his people once and for all. And, and that second, second section of the sermon that we, we talked about last week, well, that final king is Jesus. Jesus is the one who brings final deliverance. And they did to Jesus what they had been doing all along. Jesus comes and what do they do? Well, they reject him. They rebel and they crucify him. But that's not the end of the story. Then God in his power, he brings Jesus back to life. Three times Paul references an Old Testament promise. And each time he declares this was fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. So that's where the sermon has, where, where Paul has, uh, where the, the journey Paul has taken these Jews on. He's talked about a cycle of God delivering and God uh, and, and the people rebelling, but finally with Jesus, finally with Jesus, the people, the people, even though they crucified the king, he's come back to life. Now, this final section of the sermon, what he's going to do is he's going to tell the people why this is good news. He's going to do two things. Let's just put it on the screen. He's going to say why this is good news and what not to do. That's going to be, we just have a few verses to cover this morning. He's going to tell them why this is good news. Why in the world does it matter that Jesus died and rose from the grave? Why is that good news? And then he's going to finish the sermon by telling them what not to do. What not to do. That's how he wants to end it. And it's there in that second point, I think we're going to find some application for us in 2020. Right here. Starting today. So that's where we want to go. 
Did I say 20? Sorry. 2021. It made such an impression. I stayed there. 2021. My. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised many of you were not rebelling. No, no, it is not 2020 again. All right, 2021. All right. Are you listening? Are you listening? I did that on purpose. Man, if I was quicker, I would have said, I know that. I'm seeing if they're paying attention. Okay. All right, next time. All right, so let's pick up where we left off, and we're going to first deal with that first point. Paul's going to now, after, after walking through this cycle of God's people going through deliverance and rebellion, moving to Jesus, he's now going to go to this next section. He's going to tell them in just a couple verses why this is important. So here we are. Acts 13, we pick up in verse 38. Here it is. Paul says this, Therefore, therefore everything I've just told you, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through Him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. We're just going to stay right there in those two verses. And there's a lot going on in those two verses. There's a lot of depth. There's the, we got the deep end here. So some things that stand out that we, that we could give some attention to are things like uh, justification. Justification, that's a big one. We could just spend the rest of the morning talking about justification. But justification here is actually within the context of two larger themes. Those are where I want to sit just for a moment. It's this forgiveness of sins and the law of Moses. Those two things are prominent in these two verses. The forgiveness of sins and the law of Moses. Those are two things we want to tackle. And really, the thing that stands prominent in these two verses is the forgiveness of sins. Everything else that Paul wants to say here in these two verses, this why, uh, uh, why this is good news, everything is flowing out of this declaration that through Jesus there is forgiveness of sins. And when you and I think about forgiveness of sins, we probably go to the individual. There probably was a day in your life, I imagine, where someone said your sins could be forgiven. And you probably then made a choice to follow Jesus and your sins were were forgiven. It was your sins that were wiped away. It was the guilt that, uh, that, that sat on your shoulders that was removed. We think of this in a very in individual terms. That's typically how we come to that promise of the forgiveness of sins. But for Paul, the forgiveness of sins was something much larger than just an individual deliverance, something that was too uh, specific to the person. For Paul, the forgiveness of sins is hyperlinked. It is tied into promises in the Old Testament that deal directly with God's promise to deliver His people from exile. Very important for us to see, and this, this is the thing I want to sit with. Paul here is, is throwing a link out. Like you see when you are online and you see those blue, those blue hyperlinks in an article, if you click that link, it'll take you somewhere else. The forgiveness of sins is like a major blue hyperlink for those Jewish people in the audience that day as he preaches this sermon. When he declares that through Jesus there is the forgiveness of sins, he just linked to grand promises in the Old Testament. You see, after the people asked for a king, they got a king, they got Saul, and that didn't work out very well, and then they got David. And with David came all of these promises that through his line would come a king who would reign forever and ever. We know that's Jesus. It didn't take long, though, for David to mess up, but God stuck with him. And then David had a son, 
And that son, he did fairly well starting off, but then he, he had his own troubles near the end of his reign. And then after his reign, things got real bad. And actually the kingdom split, and then they, they were in, at tension with one another, and then there was just a line of kings in both kingdoms. Well, they were just pretty evil. That would be the best way to say it. They did a lot of bad things. And eventually God said, you have become so bad that I'm sending you into exile. You remember how the human story started, right? That you had, you had human and life. That's Adam and Eve. These are the Hebrew translations here. Human and life. You had human and life. And they rebelled. They rebelled. They rejected God's goodness. And what happened after their rebellion? They were sent out. They had to leave the garden of goodness. They were sent into exile. That same story replays over and over in human history, particularly with God's people. And here, after a long line of kings who have done very bad things, God finally sends His people into exile. It first happens with northern kingdom Israel. They go into exile. Assyria takes them into exile. Never do they regather again. And then just a couple hundred years later, less than a couple hundred years later, the kingdom of Babylon comes and takes the people of Judah off into exile. They, like human in life, like Adam and Eve, they now are sent away from the promised land because of their sin, because of their rebellion. And it's there, it's there while in exile, while they're replaying the human story, it's there that God sends a promise that He's going to regather them back. They're coming back. They will be brought back to the land of promise. And actually, not only will they be brought back, everything will be restored. It's a promise that God will make everything right. And you can imagine that if you are sitting in exile, you are in a foreign land, oppressed, believing God may have just left you forever and ever. Now He speaks in through the prophets saying, I have, I'm not done with you. I'm bringing you back. Ah, it would be a promise that would give you hope. It would give you the strength to keep walking. And that's what we find. And it's in those promises we see linked in this hope of the forgiveness of sins. Because it's sin that brought, took them there in the first place. So to bring them back, you're going to have to have some promise that all that guilt that sent you out will be wiped away so you can come back in. And that's just what we find. These are the promises that are echoing in the mind of Paul as he declares, I now say the forgiveness of sins is available through Jesus. So let's take a look at some of those promises that were echoing through the mind of Paul. I want you to see, I've just put in red uh, in these passages where we see the forgiveness of sins showing up. Let's start with Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, 26 to, 22-26, this is a New Living Translation. Here's what Ezekiel proclaims to this exiled people. Therefore, give the people of Israel this message from the Sovereign Lord. I am bringing you back. For I will gather you up from all the nations and I will bring you home again to your land. And then I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away. And you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. And I will take out your stony, stubborn heart. And I will give you a tender, responsive heart. I'm bringing you back. 
I'm going to bring you back to the promised land. I'm bringing you back to the garden of goodness. And when I do, I'm washing all of your stubbornness clean. All that sin that sent you away will be removed so that you can come back in. What a promise that's echoing in the mind of Paul as he declares to these people, through Jesus, this promise is now declared to you. Jeremiah 31, an even um, a, a probably even more well-known passage. Jeremiah 31. We'll just pick up verses 31 and 34. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to, say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. There's a day coming, people of Israel, when you are coming out of exile. I'm bringing you back to the land, and that's going to look like the forgiveness of sins. So when Paul says, through Jesus, now I proclaim to you the forgiveness of sins, this is a massive hyperlink to Jeremiah 31. Exile's ending. Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. The garden of goodness is now available. One more. Just a couple chapters later, Jeremiah 33, verses 6 through 8. I will heal my people and, and will let them enjoy abundant peace and security. I will bring Judah and Israel back from captivity and I will rebuild them as they were before. I will cleanse them from all the sin they have committed against me. And I will forgive all their sins of rebellion against me. These are the, these are the promises rattling around in Paul's mind and heart as he proclaims through Jesus the forgiveness of sins is declared. Yes, every person in that room at synagogue on that Sabbath had a sin problem in their individual life. There is no doubt. But they also as a nation and as a people, just being human, they had an exile problem. And Paul's declaring it's coming to an end. Now, if you were a Jew in that day, you would have been struggling with this, this idea that God had brought the people back. Because there is a moment where the people literally leave Babylon and come back to the promised land. They even rebuild the temple. But it doesn't take long for a foreign enemy to come and occupy the land. So the, in the days of Jesus, when he shows up on the scene, uh, people don't feel like they've come out of exile. They feel like they're still in it. Because when they walk out their door or they travel to synagogue, they have to face Roman soldiers along the way. They have to, on a regular basis, pay taxes to support the empire. They are not free in their land. They are still under the weight of a foreign enemy. Those promises of relief and freedom and deliverance, the promise that one day exile would end, those promises are still out there. Because for the Jews in that day, there was no freedom. There was no deliverance. They still sat in exile. And they hoped one day God would finally bring about the promises of Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah. The day was coming. So no surprise when, for example, Jesus is taken to the temple as a baby to be dedicated. People like Simeon are declaring the consolation of Israel has arrived. The forgiveness of sins is coming. What are they saying? They're saying exile is, is near the end. We're near the end of exile. 
God is finally going to deliver us. The enemy will be removed and the new age will begin. That's, that's all there in the atmosphere as Jesus shows up on the scene. And so now Paul, as he wraps up the sermon, he tells these Jews living in a foreign land, through Jesus your exile is ended. What a promise. What a thing to hear. What a hope to carry. But Jesus? A man crucified and now living? What an odd thing to hear on that day. But for Paul, it changed everything. Now exile was ended. All the promises he, these Jews have grown up memorizing, they now were true through Jesus. And so let's summarize it this way. We'll say, I want to say it this way. When Paul declares the forgiveness of sin is available, he's declaring that the final rescue has arrived. Jesus is the way to freedom. The way out of exile. Rome can stay in the land all they want. Because it's through Jesus we now have freedom. And one day, Jesus will deal with Rome. And sure enough, he did. But you see here, Jesus sits at the center of the promise. Now, the Apostle Paul, over time, will just massage this theme. He'll just keep working it. And he'll actually begin to declare this same thing to Gentiles, people who don't even carry all those promises with them. And he's going to say it in different ways. And one of my favorite ways he says this, he just takes this very thing he just says in this sermon in Acts 13, he says it a different way in one of my favorite passages. i got a lot of favorite passages, but this is one of them. Colossians 1, 13-14. Look at how all that we've just noted in Acts 13 plays out now in this letter to this predominantly Gentile group of Christians. Here it is. Colossians 1, 13-14. For He, this is Jesus, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. And He's brought us into the kingdom of His Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If you want rescued from a life of exile, a life where everything seems dark and lonely and nothing ever works out, you have to come to the One who can bring you into the kingdom of the Son. It is Jesus. You see the language here? This is language picked up directly from the Old Testament. And it's translated for his Gentile audience here. But the way of Jesus is not just a moment where you stand before a judge and he wipes your guilt clean. It's also the image of being rescued out of a kingdom of darkness and death and coming into a kingdom of light. That is forgiveness of sin. This is not just a legal, a legal reality. Uh, this is a story we, be, we, we constantly tell. This is how Paul says it. Now, when you get freedom through the Son, it means now for these Jews that their identity marker is no longer the law of Moses. You see, if you were a Jew, freedom is going to come through is going to come through the God of Israel. You want to make sure to be part of the people of Israel. Well, what's the one key mark you need to make sure to have on your body if you're a male? You need circumcision. You have to have circumcision as your marker to make sure you're part of God's people because the only one that gets to be part of the promises of coming back from exile are God's people. And you better have the marker of God's people or you're going to be left out. 
You better make sure you also have the marker of keeping Sabbath. You better eat kosher. You better make sure that you've lined up with the law of Moses because that's the marker that says you're part of the covenant. So when God finally rescues His people, you get to be part of it. Now, Paul says, the identity marker is not the law of Moses. It is faith in Jesus. So if you get faith in Christ, you get the whole thing, you get the whole package thrown in. You see, if you get Jesus, you get the whole law of Moses fulfilled. Because Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses. So if you connect yourself to the one who fulfilled the law, you get all of the identity that comes with him. So now it's faith. Not making sure you keep all the rules. Now rules are important. The way you live matters. But now you trust a person. It's not keeping a set of rules. This is transformational for the Jewish people. And many of them struggled with it. There was actually a group of Christians in modern Turkey that really struggled. There were actually a group of Jews who said, you can have Jesus, but you better make sure to keep all of the markers that say you're a Jew. You can have Jesus and your markers. So believe in Jesus all you want, but you better make sure to keep circumcising everyone. And you better make sure to keep Sabbath. And you better make sure that the food laws, you keep all the food laws. And Paul stepped into this, this group of Christians and he had something to say about all that. And there are many passages we could go to, but I'm just picking this one with this group of Christians. This group of Christians in Galatia. A lot of debate on when Paul wrote this and who these Christians were. But most think it's his, it is his first letter that he wrote. Here's what Paul says. He says, Galatians 2.16, he says, Know this, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ not by works of the law. Because of the works of the law, no one will be justified. And why is that? Because you can't keep it. You can't keep the law. You can't keep all the rules. You're never going to be good enough. The moment you break one, you might as well break them all. It is through faith in Christ. You are not saved by your works. You are saved by grace. And so now the promise isn't just that the, that the Jews will be brought out of exile and returned to the land, the promise is now for every human in life, for everyone that comes from the line of Adam and Eve, you now can be brought out of the kingdom of darkness. You don't have to try to keep a bunch of rules. You get connected to Jesus and you'll get the, all the promises thrown in with it. Now that just seems to be too good to be true, doesn't it? But that's the kind of God we have, the God who lavishes us with mercy and he abounds in grace, slow to anger, full of forgiveness. This is the thing Paul declares to this group of Jews and God-fearing Gentiles that now the way is open. Exile has ended. Come to Jesus. But you know there's this human problem sitting out there. What happens when God delivers? Humans rebel. That's just, that's the pattern. And so how would you end a sermon? If you knew that was the pattern, if that had been the way you had set up your message, you'd probably end the way Paul ends. He's going to end by telling them what not to do. Because he knows. He knows his own heart and he knows their heart. He knows the human heart. He's watched it by reading and sitting with Scripture all his life. He knows what's going to happen. So he warns them, don't do this. Here's how we end it. Verse 40, 41. Here it is. Take care. But what the prophets have said does not 
happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. Paul here picks up a a passage from Habakkuk chapter 1. And he tells the people, don't do, don't do what Habakkuk said you would do. Don't have someone tell you something amazing and then scoff at it. Don't rebel. Don't close your ears. Don't do the thing you've been doing over and over again. The implication here is, come to Jesus and don't reject the message I just gave you. That's how he ends it. Don't walk away and reject what I just told you. And it just so happens that some of them followed suit. They actually did what he said. And they didn't reject what he said and they came to believe. But there was a whole group of them that rejected what he said. And Paul kept taking his messages message out. But some believe. So that's the sermon. It's a united sermon around this theme of deliverance and rebellion. And it all comes to center on Jesus. And it declares exile has ended. New life is available. The kingdom of darkness has been defeated. And now the kingdom of light is available to everyone who comes to Jesus. That's how he ends it. So make sure you don't reject that goodness. Now I think there's application in that second part. I think there's application there. I think all of us have spent, uh, most of us have spent a lifetime, or at least a long time, hearing about the forgiveness of sins. Hopefully this morning we've added a layer, uh, an added dimension to what it means to talk about forgiveness of sins. But in general, I imagine most of us have, have talked about forgiveness of sins, maybe received the forgiveness of sins. Even as I look at you, I imagine most of you are there. It's that second one that I think we still need to hear. It's that, it's that, call to not scoff, not reject, don't leave the way that you have started on. Now, I don't think many of us, I don't think many of us, I don't know that, I actually don't know anybody that has ever woke up and said, I'm done with God. I just don't know anyone that's ever done that. I don't know anyone that's ever believed and then in an instant said, forget it, I'm done. Everyone that I know that has left the faith has just slid away, just drifted, it just slow slide. Nothing, no fireworks, nothing to write home about, just a slide, just a slow slide. I think that's the warning for us. I think the warning for us is don't get too comfortable right where you are, because when you get comfortable, you start sliding. And one of my favorite authors I feel like every week I got something from, like, the big two, Willard and Lewis, uh, and I won't disappoint this morning. In C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, he has a chapter on faith, and in that chapter he has an analysis of faith that I think is just as relevant today as it was when Lewis wrote it. Actually, he's dealing with the human problem. I want to take a look. It's a longer quote, not as long as our quote last week, but take a look. A lot of insight here from Lewis, and I think it has a lot to say to us and bring some application from what we just looked at in Acts 13. Here's what Lewis says. The first step is to encourage the fact that your moods change. I just want to stop. You don't have context for where, where, what has come before. 
what I want you to grab is that he just said, your moods change. Okay? The way you feel right now may not be the way you feel at lunchtime. Your moods change. If you're hungry right now, you might be angry. But when you get something to eat, you're going to be fine. Your moods change. Let's keep going. The next is to make sure that if, if you have once accepted Christianity, then some of its main doctrines shall be deliberately held before your mind for some time every day. That is why daily prayers and religious readings and church going are necessary parts of the Christian life. We have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in the mind. It must be fed. And as a matter of fact, if you examine 100 people who have lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away? You see, that, I think, is where we struggle. I think all of us probably struggle here. We just just get complacent and you just drift. You didn't mean to. It just kind of happens. One decision leads to another and you drift away. And if you just come to church based on your mood, you may not show up very often. If you had, if you had to be nice to your co-workers just based on mood, you may not have a job. Do you see the point? Lewis understands something about the human, about the human experience that I think we all understand. Your mood and your feelings will not hold you in anything. I'm not just talking about your faith. I don't care if your faith was a political party or a sports team. You want to know what makes a great fan? Someone who watches that team regularly and follows them. Now listen, I'm an Atlanta Braves fan. And rightly so. And rightly so. I have all the reason behind me. But do you know what I have not done in the last year? I have not watched a Braves game. Do you know what I'm really not very concerned about right now? The Braves. I mean, they're going to win the World Series. It's fine. I did that last time. and It didn't work out too well. So sorry, Mark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but... But I'm just not that concerned about the Braves. Now, why is that? Because I haven't given my attention to the Braves. I don't even know their roster this year. I mean, I'm a fan. Maybe. Do you get the point? I'm just not that invested. And when you're not invested in a thing, it has a way of drifting. You see, what you give your attention to, what you put in front of your mind, what you constantly are, are running around in, the, in, uh, in your head, those are the things you're going to become invested in. And so faith, like anything else, must be fed. You cannot run on mood and emotion forever. Because they'll change. And so here I think for us, the challenge is to make sure that we stay connected. You see, we just went through a year where we didn't have to be connected. And, and really, in some ways, we're still there. You don't have to be connected to a church family. And now, with all of our technology, you can go get any sermon you want. You can, go, you can go listen to someone else pray. You can go listen to worship music somewhere else. All you need is an internet connection and a computer, and off you go into the world of Christianity. 
You don't need a local church. But what happens when we disconnect from people is faith has a way of fading and drifting. Now listen, this isn't just a COVID-19 problem. That's, the, that's an easy target because it's right in front of us. This has been a constant problem for God's people. Take a look at Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, 23-25. This was a problem back for the early Christians. He says this, the writer says this, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more, as you see the day approaching. You see, not coming to church one Sunday, eh, not too bad. Two, you're going to make it. Three, listen, you'll be fine. Once a month? Okay. Okay. How quick did it go from one Sunday to two? Not too, not too bad. It's pretty easy. The same, the same trend from one Sunday to just missing one Sunday to missing two Sundays is the same trend, the same habit that forms from missing one month to missing two months. To missing three months. My point here is not to berate us to make sure that you are in church every Sunday. My point is that you and I stay connected to a local church. Listen, there are people in our church family that still aren't back because of the health risks of COVID. So you know what they need to be doing? Staying connected as much as they can online, but also through text messages, phone calls, and cards. That's what they need to be doing. And I know many of them are. But do you see how quickly we drift? So here's what I want to do. I want to give you a next step. I want to give you a next step. And I think this can have application for all of us. Here it is. Have a plan to be regularly connected to a local church. Have a plan. Now, you've got to execute the plan, but at first, have a plan. So listen, if you're, like, if you're not going to church, but like once every two months then maybe have a plan, we're going to get there once a month. And then guess what happens? You know what? We're going twice a month. You know what? We'll go three times a month. My point here is not to make you feel guilty, unless you need that. If you need that, then let godly grief move you into repentance. But my point, my point is not just to, not just to say, go to church. It is that you need it. Because without it, you drift. And drifting after a long period of time ends up with no faith at all. And that just happens. It's exactly what Lewis talks about. Alright, so I'm long-winded this morning. I actually told a group of people this would be a short sermon. I should have known. I should have known when I make these promises. Good thing I'm not God. Alright. I want to share with you a story. I don't think I've ever shared this story with you. Um, I want to sit down. It becomes more... It becomes more intimate if I sit down. So I want to tell you a story, uh, a story I don't think I've shared with you, um, it, but I'll make it quick. I just told you to make it quick. I, listen, we're going to deliver. Here it is. So when I, was, when I was in seminary, I began to move left theologically. That means I began to question a lot of things about the Bible. I began to question a lot of things about faith. Uh, I began to wonder if certain things were true and and what, uh, you know, uh, what, what good was God really when all this evil was happening? I had a lot of questions, a lot of doubt. And I moved very left theologically. 
Now, politically, I still held, I held to the right. Pretty, I grew up on Rush Limbaugh. So, I mean, I still held on. And theology and politics were still very separated from me. But when I went to the University of Tennessee and I was working on my Ph.D. in U.S. history, I began to move left politically as well. Now, the point is not that, the point is not my political stance, but that, that move politically began to do something in my heart. Now, I'm not saying that if you're left politically, it does something in your heart. I'm telling you my story. Because what began to happen is I began to question, what is right and wrong? I began to question if I could decide what was moral and immoral. I actually began to think I had the moral high ground in anyone that didn't agree with me. Because I was really smart. And I was around a lot of smart people. So I could actually determine what was right and wrong. And, and anyone that was too conservative, I would look down on. So simple-minded. So narrow. So pedestrian. This was, this was the kind of person I was becoming. And I really didn't want or really see a need for God at that point. And at that point, I wasn't even in vocational ministry because I was teaching at the university, working on my Ph.D., and we had Rylan and Ethan. We had our first two kids. And so I was pretty consumed with myself. And I was trained to be consumed with myself and my research and how good I was and make sure I told everyone about it so that I could get funding to do what I wanted to do. The only thing that saved me in those four years was a little small white church. Uh, when I say white, I mean the color of the building. Literally, it was a white country church. Okay? Um, in our current climate, I need to clarify. It literally was a white building. Okay. This little, this little rural church that Tess and I had gone to for nine years at that point, that is the only thing that saved me. Because you know what I would have to do every Sunday? I would have to get up, get the kids ready, and go to church. And for two reasons. Because I'm a people pleaser. And because I had been the youth minister at this church. So what would it look like if I stopped showing up? I didn't want that. I didn't want to let people down. So I just kept going to church. I also had Tess. She was an important part of this. There was no way I was staying home and, uh, and Tess go to church. That just wasn't going to happen. And I had two kids. I had to be an example for my kids. But I really didn't want to go. Didn't see need to go. I had it all figured out. I was smart. And I was around a lot of smart people. And I remember, I could tell you, I could show you the different intersections on the way to this church. It was a 17-minute drive. And I remember so many Sundays wishing there was a way I could get out of it. I didn't want to be there at all. And we even went to Sunday school. Like, it was like double duty. I didn't like it. And that's the thing that saved my faith. Because eventually I figured out after four years that all of this arrogance was driving Tess and I to a divorce. And you know who I looked to when we finally began to hit those, this moment of crisis? Those people at that little church that had been faithful for so many years. You know what I began to want? I began to want a life that was that steady. I wanted to have a life where I could believe in something, a God who cared and loved that much. I had been so consumed with myself that I needed them. And it is only because I got up begrudgingly every Sunday and went to church that I am sitting on this stool telling you this story. I didn't want to go. I didn't see the need to go, but I went. And it saved me. I don't know where I would be without going to church every Sunday. So if you need your kids to save you, good. 
make sure they're here. I understand that some people have jobs where they can't get here every Sunday. That, like, that's a reality. But anytime you can be here, you be here. And if you can't be here physically, you get here online. And if you can't do any of that, then you make sure that you connect with someone in this church during the week. Do you see the point? My point is not just to make another rule that you have to follow, and if you don't, you feel guilty and you're going to hell. That's not the point. You would never hear me say, if you don't go to church, you're going to hell. The point, the reason you go to church is so that something stays alive inside of you. And it's because we went to that small little church Sunday after Sunday, even when I didn't want to, that a spark stayed alive that God brought back. So church and anyone watching that doesn't go to this church and this isn't their church family, my point here is not to bolster our church attendance. Listen, just make sure you're somewhere that's teaching the Bible and elevates Jesus. That's the goal here. God will take care of our church families. He'll take care of all the church families. You make sure that you're there. Because if you drift, at some point you will not be able to control how far you drift. And I'm very grateful that I had a wife and kids and this personality that wants to please everyone. And don't you think that I'm not thinking how long this sermon has gone and you don't like me right now. I'm thinking it right now. Thinking you're critiquing me. I see Mark looking at his watch. I know Ollie's got me timed. I know Wayne's going to say something as he leaves this door, this room. And because of that, I'm going to go longer. I want to share another story. Um, okay. You get the point. Let's not drift. So make a plan. Be connected to a local church. If it's this church, another church, be connected. Because drifting is a dangerous game. And I know it was for me. So that's how that next step looks like in my life. Now I'm locked in. I have to be here. Golly. All right. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thanks for the inspiration you gave Paul so many years ago in that synagogue. And thank you that it was recorded so faithfully by inspiration and it comes down to us now. Help us. Help us to be a faithful people, constantly connected to, our, to a church family. And so would you help us do that? Anyone that is drifting, bring them back. Any soul struggling like I was struggling, bring them back. Rekindle the spark. And may they realize, just like you helped me realize, even when they don't want to be here, they need to be. If that be online, phone conference line, whatever that looks like, help people stay connected. We thank you for all of our church family. And we pray your grace to cover us, knowing that we have been returned from exile now into the kingdom of your Son, the forgiveness of sins, and we're grateful for that. And we pray that under the name of him who saved us, Jesus the Christ. And together we say, Amen.